Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. We invite you to be seated and open your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 2 today. Philippians chapter 2. Someone has said that life is a series of ups and downs. Well, I want us to look at what Paul says to the church at Philippi, understanding that for the Christian, life is a series of ins and outs. Something that happens within us and something that happens as we live out the Christian life, living out the gospel. So today's message is the ins and outs of living the Christian life. Look with me at Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. So then, my dear friends, Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. He loves them. They're like his family. He calls them dear friends. Just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like the stars in the world. Hold firmly to the message of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. The theme of rejoicing and joy is in every single chapter of the book of Philippians. And even as Paul is calling them to live out the Christian life, he says it should be done with joy. Three things that I want to highlight from this passage of Scripture today. There's so much truth in here, but we're just going to try to cover parts of it. First of all, we as followers of Christ have a purpose to undertake. We as followers of Christ have a purpose to undertake, and here's that purpose, living out our salvation, living it out, living out the Christian life. Paul says in verse 12 there, just, um, he says, now you're here, you've obeyed in my absence and in my presence, now I want you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then in verse 14 and through 16, he explains that, how they're to do it without grumbling or arguing, that they could be blameless and pure, faultless in this crooked and perverted generation or culture we live in, that you could shine like stars in the world. And he speaks of holding firmly to the message, and we'll come back to that in a moment as we go through this passage. But here's the key. For the follower of Christ, our purpose is to live out the gospel, to live out the reality of our salvation. Now, I want to I say something before we move on. Just to to remind us of this truth, Paul is not saying work for your salvation. You cannot earn your salvation. There's nothing we can do. So just to underscore that, I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9, and 10 in Ephesians 2. Many of you have already memorized this passage of Scripture. Some of you have highlighted in your Bibles. I encourage you to do that if you haven't already. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for you are saved by grace through faith, important, by grace, through faith. It is not from yourselves, it is God's gift. And if that isn't clear enough, he says it this way in verse nine, not from works so that no one can boast. 
For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. We are saved by grace through faith. It is not of works. So whenever you read a passage of scripture that seems to say one thing, you say, that that really doesn't ring. You have to, true, go and look at the rest of scripture. Let scripture be the best commentary of itself. So if I read that passage in, in chapter two of Philippians that says, work out your own salvation, if I think that sounds like he's saying, work on my salvation, I need to look at the rest of scripture. Paul makes it clear in Ephesians, he's not saying work for your salvation, he's saying work it out. The term is, a, is in Paul's day was, was used, a mining term. It was used to describe that, that working out of, of going to the mine and extracting, extracting all the possible ore that you could get from the mine. It was also a term that was used in farming. To say to, to work at the farm was to say to take the, do everything you can do to cultivate the ground and do all that's possible that you can gain the best harvest from that ground. That helps me understand this passage. Paul is saying, I want you to so live out your Christian life, so live out your salvation that you get everything out of it that God intends for you to get. Someone has used the analogy that he's saying, work out your salvation like you would work out a math problem. I like that. That helps me understand that. I can remember in school, math was not my best subject. It was my worst subject. I was not good at it. And I would turn in, sometimes I would get that exam, and, and the teacher would look at my, and I'd, I'd guess at the answer, and sometimes I'd get it right, and they'd always write on there, show your work. Did y'all get that note? Show your work. And I said, I got the right answer. Show your work. I want to know how you got there. Here's what Paul is saying. I want you to work out your salvation like you would work out a math problem. I want you to, to see every step, every moment, every day of your life lived out as the gospel of Jesus Christ lives out through you. And then he interestingly has a couple of statements here as he talks about grumbling and arguing. So as he's asking them to live out, work out their salvation, let the, the word of God, we'll talk about that in a minute, the Holy Spirit of God work through you, he says, stop grumbling and arguing. I think your notes might say complaining. I want that to be arguing. Stop grumbling and arguing. Look at verse 14. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. Did you see that? Do everything without grumbling and arguing. I have reserved in my life some places where I say it's okay for me to grumble. Right? Especially after Hurricane Harvey. You know, we can say everything else is great, but I'm going to grumble about this one. Paul says, do everything without grumbling. And he's writing to the church at Philippi. And he says to the church, do everything without arguing. Some have, have uh, spent a great deal of time with this statement, work out your salvation. Is Paul talking to an individual? Is he talking to the church? And my answer is yes. He's saying as individuals, I want you to work out your salvation. I want it to be something that is lived out in your life. And as a church, I want that to be something that you live out also. So it's both. There's a, an individual aspect of working out your salvation, this individual aspect of living it out. And there's a corporate aspect or a, a, a church-wide aspect. Someone said a proclaiming church will not be a complaining church. If we're going to be proclaiming the gospel, as Andy prayed that we would do when we go out into the, to the, our, our community this week, if we're going to be proclaiming, we can't be complaining. David Jeremiah says it this way, as believers, we cannot be grumbling and complaining and at the same time attracting people to Jesus Christ. I found that to be the case. When I'm a woe is me, whiny, mumbly, grumbly, pouty person, people are not attracted to Jesus in me. They're repelled. I don't want to go hang out with that guy. He says he's a Christian, but he's, he's in the dumps all the time. Paul says, do everything without grumbling and complaining. Listen, 
This is not just a temptation for the individual believer. It is a temptation for the church because we are made up of a bunch of flawed, imperfect people, right? If you don't believe me, just look around. Maybe if you don't believe me, get your phone out and take a selfie, all right? (laughs) We are a bunch of imperfect, flawed people, and we will let each other down. I will let you down. If it hasn't happened yet, it's on the horizon, all right? Yeah, there's still some time today. I'll let you down. I will disappoint you. I will not live up to your expectations of me because they're unrealistic. Your expectations of others may be unrealistic. Anybody in this this church family, we're going to be disappointed. I'm overwhelmed lately by looking at social media, and I think the language of our culture is grumbling and griping and complaining. That may be the new language. It is all about that. The news that gets the biggest play, the the people that are most popular, the people that are whining and griping and complaining. But our culture's in good company. Remember the children of Israel, their story? Wah, wah, wah. They're delivered from bondage, and they come up to the Red Sea. Wah, wah, wah. And God opens up the Red Sea, and they pass across, and he swallows up Pharaoh's army, and they get out in the desert a little bit, and they get thirsty, and it's wah, wah, wah. And then God provides water for them, and they go a little bit further, and they get hungry, and it's wah, wah, wah. And then God sends manna from heaven, and they have this manna. You know what they say about the manna after a while? Wah, wah, wah. And then God leads them up to the promised land, and he sends some spies and says, go check it out. Basically, he's saying, look how good it is, what I've provided for you. And what do they do? They come back, and the majority of the report is wah, wah, wah. We will not attract people Christ will not be attractive to them if our lives are mired in grumbling and arguing and murmuring. Moses had to call them on it, call the children of Israel on it. Basically, they said, your your murmuring is an attack on the goodness of God. Just picture this. The God of the universe miraculously drops something in their lap for them to eat and on the ground and they gather it up and it's manna and it's his provision and they complain about that. And he says to them, your murmuring is an attack on the goodness of God. Here's a great definition of murmuring. An outward expression of an inner lawlessness and rebellion that shakes the fist in the face of God and repudiates his right to rule. It questions his love and his wisdom. I think David Jeremiah is the one that said that also. For me to complain and gripe and murmur and argue is to say, God, you don't have it together. You really don't care about me. Paul says, stop, stop. You know, we spent quite a bit of time in chapter 2, the, the passage, verse 6 through 11, that talks about Jesus coming out of heaven and all his glory to become a man to die on the cross. And then if you look at chapter 3, and Paul says, everything that I have in verse 7, I, I consider lost, but Christ, we'll look at that soon when we get, if we ever get to chapter 3. And, and I'm just thinking as I go through this, if, if my tendency is to argue and grumble, If I'll just focus on Philippians 2, how Christ humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, and how Paul says, I consider everything that I've gained nothing except Christ, it'll put things in perspective. 
I've got some folks, and they catch me every time, and I think, I need to do that. I ask them, how are you doing? And here's what they'll say, better than I deserve. Better than I deserve. That ought to be our response, shouldn't it? How are you doing? Well, (laughs) better than I deserve. Because of the cross, I didn't get what I deserve. You didn't either. That's what grace is all about. John Newton, um, who wrote the Amazing Grace and a lot of other hymns of the Christian faith, used to try to illustrate the futility of grumbling and complaining. And he told the story about a man who, who uh, inherited this estate, large estate in New York, New York City. So he travels a long way to get to inherit this incredible estate. He goes to take possession of it. And about a mile away from him taking possession of this estate, his wagon breaks down. And he has to walk the last mile to the city. And the whole last mile, all he does is wring his hand saying, my wagon's broken. My wagon's broken. My wagon's broken. Folks, that, that describes us a lot of the time, doesn't it? We've been given this incredible, incredible inheritance in Christ. We've been given all that Paul talks about, especially if you read through the book of Ephesians, all the blessings, and we're just wringing our hands about this last mile we have to walk. Paul's writing about that last mile here. He's saying, live it out. Boy, I didn't plan on spending that much time there. Number two, stand out. Stop grumbling and arguing. Stand out in a crooked generation. Here's how we're fleshing out our salvation, living it out. Stand out. Look at verse 15. Children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world. You might want to use the word shine instead of stand out, but I think stand out, it captures that for me. My, when I walk in obedience, when I am not a grumbler, complainer, when I am focusing on the promises and the incredible blessings of God, I'm going to be sending out this message that says I'm different than the world. This crooked generation, I'm, I'm walking in the light, and, and, and as a follower of Christ, it's pictured as walking a straight line. Some of us, our lines aren't as straight as others. In Matthew chapter 5, remember he said, you're the salt of the earth? Be salty. That's what he's saying here. Be be pure and blameless in a crooked generation. That doesn't mean perfect, but it it means as you lay lay your life down alongside our generation, this culture, we're going to be more straight than they are because they're perverted and crooked. He says, you're walking in, in obedience with me. Be salty. Also in Matthew chapter 5, he says, you're the light of the world, right? Let the light shine. Don't hide it under a bushel. No, right? I'm going to let it shine. You shine like the stars, he says here in in Philippians chapter 2. Stand out in this crooked culture. And let me tell you something. It doesn't take much to stand out in this crooked culture, does it? Used to be that we had this Christian church culture in America, and then we have believers who walk alongside this culture and we kind of look the same and now you lay down a a a christian their life in this culture and it's totally different things that are simple to us that are just no-brainers in obeying christ they they stand against the culture we become ridiculed and ostracized i'm hanging bookshelves in my study at home somebody asked me today are you going to be able to have enough room for all your books and i said well the third of them are gone and I don't have to worry about those, so I'm, but I'm putting bookshelves up and trying to, trying to level my bookshelves as best I can. And Kelly has a laser level. Those things are pretty cool. 
I think my level got damaged in the hurricane because it's not doing the, its job. My, the bubble's not as it should be. But she puts that laser up there, and let me tell you, it is straight. And that laser shows how crooked I had myself. That's what a laser does. It says this, lasers are not crooked. They're straight. What Paul might write it today, be a laser. Just be a, be, be a laser light beam, and you'll show the culture. By the way, there's a lot of preaching that condemns the culture for being lost. They're just being lost because they're lost, right? I'm, I'm an advocate of, yes, you need to stand up and be prophetic, but if you will live the life, that will speak volumes to those who see that they don't have what you have. So we have this purpose to live out. Stop grumbling and arguing. Stand out in a culture. Number two, we have a power to appropriate. A power to appropriate. Here's the power. It is God at work in us by his Holy Spirit. Look at verse 15. So that you can be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked, crooked generation, perverted generation, uh-huh, among whom you shine like the stars in the world. Verse, I need to go back to verse 13. I'm sorry. 13. For it is God. There it is. For it is God who is working in you. Enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. If you thought, he said in verse 12, that you work for your salvation, verse 13 says, no, you don't. It is God who is at work in you. God is working in you. The Bible says in Acts chapter 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. God will be in you, working through you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, your body is the the temple, the, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit of God. You have this power to appropriate that phrase there, God is working in you. It's the same phrase we get, the word we get our word energized from. God is energizing you. He is empowering you. The same God that is work in us wants to work through us. We cannot do it on our own. We have to be trusting in him to bring that transformation. And I was looking at a, a list of the people in scripture as I was co- kind of going through preparing, thinking about the, the years that Moses spent, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness before God even used him. Thinking about Paul, everything Paul had to go through, everything Peter had to go through before God used him. We're, we're a work of grace, God transforming us. God, someone said God is more interested in the worker, the workman, than he is the work. He's more interested in transforming you than he, he has seen you do something for him. It's interesting in verse 13, at the end of that, he says, it is God at work in you, both desiring to... Uh, to both desire and to work out his good pleasure. God wants to fulfill his purpose. Remember Romans 8, 28, 29? God's working in all things for those who love him for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That's my paraphrase. Then he says our purpose is to be conformed to the image, the likeness of his son. God wants to transform us, conform us to his image. And I just jotted down three tools that he uses. So these next three are just three tools that God has chosen to use as he conforms us to his image, as he works in us so that he can work through us. This power that's appropriate in our life. First of all, the word of God is at work in us. The word of God is at work. He mentions there in verse 16, uh, or in verse 13, that the message, uh, it's 16, holding firmly to the message of life. That's the word of God in us. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, speaks of what Paul says that 
We have the message of God within us, which also works effectively in us as believers. The psalmist said, I've treasured your word in my heart so that I won't sin against God. Paul said in Colossians, it's the message of Christ that dwells in us richly. The word of God is at work in our lives. That's what God's Holy Spirit uses. He's going to take his word, and it's going to transform us, and it's going to spill out. James Galliard, a pastor, I think in South Carolina, said it this way, the importance of not just reading the word and studying the word. He said, it's just too easy to sit back and take it in, God's message, without letting it out. Too many of us brag on what we learn when we spend time in the word instead of letting it be about self-assessment. You get closer to God not just because you read the word, but when you get challenged by it and you make daily adjustments to it. I like that. It is not enough to say, I just studied the book of Philippians, or I just studied the book of Daniel, or I just studied the book of Revelation. Have I spent time in God's word so that he transforms me, so that I adjust my life to it? That's what's important. Not how much I know up here, but how much I'm letting it transform me. Then I was thinking about how prayer accomplishes God's work in us. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says it this way, Now to him who is able to do it beyond all that we ask or think according to that power that works within us. And Paul is speaking a prayer there. Acts chapter 2 again, when the Holy Spirit came to dwell among his church, it was in response to their prayer. God accomplishes his work in us by prayer. We're going to look later at where Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It is prayer that brings transformation. And the last thing Paul talks about this, it's suffering. Suffering accomplishes God's work in us. He mentions all through, we looked at this in, in, in the passages before this, how he's going through difficulty. He's suffering. And now he says, now, church, you're going to suffer, and God's going to use that. James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. James writes it this way, Consider it great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing or the trying of your faith produces endurance, but endurance must complete its work so that you will be mature and complete, lacking nothing. God says suffering is going to be used in your life to make you more like Christ so that you can be mature. So those are just three things that God's Holy Spirit uses. The Word of God, prayer, and suffering in my life. And lastly, we have a practice in which to participate. I think this is the heart of Paul's message, finding joy in submission. Finding joy in submission. Let's go back and look at verse 16 through 18. Hold firmly to the message of life. Paul says it this way, then I can boast in that day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. That Paul's thinking about the day where he's going to stand before Jesus. At the end of the age, he says, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering, as a sacrifice and service in your, of your faith, I am glad I rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. This practice that we're to be a part of is being joyful in submission to Christ and submission to others. Remember we talked about that last time, that we're to be like Christ who washed the disciples' feet, being willing to wash one another's feet. It means this, we're going to be consistent in serving others. Consistent in serving others. Paul's pouring himself out like a drink offering. Thinking back to that Old Testament example when they brought the offering to the Lord that the, the, the wine was poured out on the, off, on, the, on the altar. 
Paul says, my life's being poured out for you. And he wasn't, he wasn't complaining about that. He wasn't saying, I wish I didn't have to. He said, I take joy in that, that my life is being poured out, sacrificed for you. That's the here and now. Right now, Paul says, I want us to be consistent in serving others. I read a, an Instagram post by Matt Chandler this week that's just so appropriate. He said, we will need more than platitudes and bumper sticker Christianity to weather what's inching towards us. We, we, as we look at our society and our culture, it's going to take more than bumper sticker theology, Christian platitudes. It's going to take a deep, abiding faith as we walk in obedience. No shortcuts in serving others. We're about to enter into a week of vacation Bible school, VBS, and it's going to be all about serving. If you've signed up to be a volunteer, you're going to be serving kids all week long. It's what we do. We, we want to be consistently doing that. It's a, just a, a microcosm of the Christian faith, serving others. How many of you have ever been on a diet? Okay. Thank you for a few honest people. We've all tried them. You know what I found out about diets? There are no shortcuts. I want the shortcut. Find me the shortcut. Do I really have to leave that out of my life for that long? Do I really have to exercise that way for that long? Yes, you do. There are no shortcuts in dieting. There are no, there are no shortcuts in the Christian life. And Paul says suffering and serving is going to be a part of it. And you should take joy in that. Then Paul says we can be confident that we've been faithful. Confident that we've been faithful. Back back. Back up to verse 16. He says, Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. To stand before the Lord and hear him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. By the way, fear and trembling, as he tells us to work our, our salvation out in fear and trembling, that just means to be in awe of God. Knowing that one day we're going to stand before him and he will say, like the parable in Matthew when he sent the, served the stewards out and gave them, gave them uh, talents to invest, and those who invested, they came before him, and he said, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. These are the ins and outs of living the Christian life. I have been saved by grace through faith, and I am living it out. When I was going to college at the University of Houston, the last year I was there, well, next to last year I was there, I got a job with UPS, United Parcel Service. Best job for a college student. Great hours, great pay, but hard work. You, you uh, show up in, at noon in Houston, Texas, and they put you in the back of a semi-trailer that's been parked and closed for several hours, and you roll up that back of it, and the heat just comes out like, like a furnace, and then spend five hours in there Loading boxes that come down the chute. Well, I, I always thought of myself as a good hard worker, and I got in there, and, and the boxes come down this long conveyor belt, this huge building, and then the chute feeds them down to your truck, and you stack them in your truck. And I kept getting the chute clogged up, and boxes going everywhere, and the supervisors would come, and they kept writing me up. You're not working fast enough. I, I am working as fast as I can work. I'm doing everything I can do, and I wasn't staying up, and it was killing me every day. Finally, I started talking to some of the other guys around, finding how they stacked the boxes in those trucks. And I kind of got the system down. And after a while, I got into a routine, and my, my chute didn't get stopped up anymore with boxes. 
And then they said, you know, Kevin, you did such a good job on that truck. You're going to do this truck and that truck at the same time. I said, you're crazy. Nope. There was a time when actually three trucks, I was jumping between three trucks. The chutes would get full, and I'd, I'd do it. And here's what I found out. The ins and outs of loading a truck at UPS, you can't work harder. You have to work smarter. I had to learn the system. I had to fit in with the way they did things there. And once I figured it out, man, it was, it was a, well, I'm using the term relative. It was a breeze. <laughs> It wasn't the drudgery it was before. It now became something that I can do, and this works for me. I thought about the Christian life. We sometimes get so worked up about how we're supposed to do it. If we'll just step back and rest and say, God, what's your plan? What's your system? And just rest in that. And let him use you. That's what Paul's talking about here. Let's pray together.